0: Hello and welcome back to another episode of Doom to Bloom podcast. Today we're going to talk about all things relating to substance use surrounding the approach of harm reduction. I know there's so much stigma and shame and questions and stereotypes about harm reduction and why can't people just stop using substance instead of Work to reduce the harm. So, I'm going to talk about that today. And it's also just a solo episode. So, I'm back. Hello. Hi. Welcome to Harm Reduction 101. So, I'm kind of going to jump a little bit. But what I've done is I've researched about this topic, as well as a bunch of experience that I have just working in the field and working with individuals in my full time job that struggle with substance use. And addiction and why the agency that I work with or work for, I guess, does have a harm reduction approach. So before we get into the nitty-gritty, I think it's important to just understand what harm reduction is. And so here's a bit of a description for you. Now keep in mind all of the research and all of the information that I'm going to share is all from Drug Policy Canada, Public Health Canada, um, Canadian Mental Health Association, they're all very reliable and good resources to support with, so if you have more questions, I really encourage you to seek out these resources and these websites and just make sure that they're, you know, not Wikipedia, make sure they're a good resource to use and actually providing real information and not just a website somebody made. So jumping back into the definition of harm reduction, it is an evidence-based client-centered approach and it works to reduce the health and social harms associated with addiction and substance use. Now the one key thing to note for this is that I guess in an ideal world, most people would abstain or just completely stop using substance, but unfortunately, it's not that easy, and I'm sure people have tried, and it just doesn't work that way. So it's important to note that harm reduction does not, does not require people to abstain or completely stop using substance. It just works to reduce some of the risks around addiction and substance use, because unfortunately, right now in 2023, we're in a drug pandemic we 're in an opioid crisis there 's so many individuals using substances and struggling with addiction that you probably know so many of them and you may not actually know that they struggle, but they do um, some addictions and and substance use is very visible and some is very kind of hidden and sheltered so bear with me while we talk about this I know there 's a lot of controversy and People just don't necessarily maybe agree with harm reduction, so that's what this episode is about, and trying to raise awareness, educate, and work to break down the stigma, which are exactly the goals that I had for this podcast. So let's continue with this conversation. Now, with harm reduction, before we get into kind of what it is, how it works, why it works, let's jump back and talk about problematic substance use and addiction, and what that actually means. In my opinion, both professionally and personally, I find a lot of folks will say, "Oh, they choose to use drugs. Oh, they choose to drink until they're blackout drunk. They choose to get alcohol poisoning. They choose to use substances so many times until they're homeless and then they get criminal involvement. And then they go to jail and then they just keep using and using and while that may be the case for a very, very, very small percentage, addiction and substance use tends to go in that pattern regardless of who you are. Again, I always say that mental health doesn't discriminate based on any factor, any age, any gender, any sexuality, any ethnicity, any religion, culture, and the list goes on and on and on. Addiction and substance use are the exact same. Everybody in any category can struggle with substance use and addiction. And they do. It's just whether it's known or not. And again, that's why I say that there's a lot of people in our lives, both personally, professionally, and otherwise, that struggle with addiction that you might not even know. And sometimes it's masked so well that you really would have no idea until they come forward and say, hey, I have a problem. I want some support with this. So Going into kind of the addiction and problematic substance use, essentially a person's experience with addiction and or substance use is different for every single person. And there is evidence backing this up, but there is multiple contributing factors that are biological, psychological, and social as to why somebody may struggle with addiction and or substance use and mental health. So sometimes there's social issues such as poverty or barriers to getting supports with health that ultimately leave somebody isolated or struggling to cope with pain or chronic pain or certain conditions, certain disorders, so they may, in partnership with the poverty and lack of financial support, lack of finances, may turn to substances to cope with the pain or... disorder or their stresses or whatever that may look like. Some of the other ones, kind of a mix of biological and psychological, but genetics. Genetics is huge. The way a person's brain functions, so all of the different chemicals and neurotransmitters and all of that kind of stuff in your brain also supports you possibly struggling with substance use or addiction or It might be the other way, and the way your brain functions and your genetic predisposition, I think it's called, is what makes you not want to use substances or makes you less susceptible to the addiction. Some people are more addiction-prone personality-wise, and that is proven to be genetic and brain functionality, not necessarily just because they want to. The other big, big one that I see almost every day in my professional life at work is previous experience of of trauma. Now, this could be trauma in adulthood, trauma in childcare, trauma in teenage years, any age range of trauma. And it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be, you know, the worst of the worst for trauma. Trauma is trauma regardless of how, quote unquote, intense or severe it is for you. Trauma is still trauma, and everybody's traumas are valid, but what my traumas may be is totally different from all of the people in my office that I work with, or all of my clients and my traumas are totally different. And there's a lot of reasons for that, but that's a whole other conversation. But experiences of trauma, there's studies that scientifically prove that a lot of the traumas that we've experienced lead to addiction and substance use because that's the coping mechanism you know partnered with maybe childhood trauma and trauma in your teen years leads to maybe you leaving the house leads to you obviously not having the best finances or best housing situation which could lead to poverty which could lead to homelessness which then leads you know there's there's all these different doors that open and they're not necessarily good doors when it comes to that however It does happen and I see it quite often. Uh, Another big determinant of addiction and substance use is significant, like I said, but it's the access to resources. It's the freedom to not be discriminated against or kind of be targeted, I guess if you will, and the social inclusion. There's so many different social determinants of health that also contribute to addiction and substance use but there's no single said it's different for everybody because everybody is different in several ways. So I think that's important to note that just because somebody does use substance use, sorry, does have substance use concerns or it's maybe a full-blown addiction at this point, I think you need to kind of take a step back and realize, okay, there's biological, psychological, social factors. Maybe the cultural or religious background says You know, you drink to celebrate, you drink when you're sad, you drink when you're angry, you just drink, 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 and that's what the culture wants you to do. Or maybe there's religious views where drinking is unacceptable, so in order to cope, you can't drink alcohol, but you can use cocaine or fentanyl or heroin or methamphetamines. It really depends, but there's so many different factors, so I really urge you to take a step back rather than judge ask, I wonder what's going on in their life. I wonder what they've experienced. I wonder what they're currently experiencing. I wonder what their social supports look like. I wonder if there's a way I can help. And honestly, the best way to help without you getting, quote unquote, your hands dirty in working with these vulnerable populations is just to not judge. Ease the stigma, ease the stereotypes of them. And just... You know, maybe it means you buy them a coffee if they're on the street, or you buy them a McDonald's meal, or you drop off a blanket, or you drop off a gift card. Just small acts really do go a long way when somebody is really, really struggling. So keep that in mind. Now, I think the other important factor to consider, and it's, I think it, even just saying important is, it, it's not outlining how important it is, but There is a huge, huge link between mental health and addictions. And so when somebody does have a mental health concern or diagnosis with an addiction or a substance use disorder, that is known as a concurrent disorder. And so it's hard statistically to know who actually has concurrent disorders because maybe people hide their mental health concerns because of stigma or shame. And maybe they hide their substance use. Maybe they hide both. So there's a statistics from CMHA, which is the Canadian Mental Health Association. So if you're in the UK listening or the US listening, this might be maybe a little different, but probably very similar. But research shows that more than 50% of people who are seeking help for an addiction also struggle with a mental health illness or diagnosis. 50 50%, that's half of the population that want support with addiction, also need mental health supports. And now, I guess that brings me into the amount of stigma and discrimination that they face. There's, there's so many different labels and myths and stereotypes about people that use substance, whether it's, you know, alcohol, or if it's a a drug like fentanyl or methamphetamines or it's just cannabis addiction doesn't have to be substance related it could be gambling it could be sex it could be overworking it could be a food addiction it could be a video game addiction it could be the social media addiction where the dopamine hits and you just need more likes and follows and it just continues to make your dopamine receptors create more and more and more until you crave more likes and more follows. It does not have to mean that addiction is only substance use related. But regardless of what the addiction may be, there is a lot of reasons why stigma and discrimination are important to bring up. It impacts the person. 100% it impacts the person. Could be on a subconscious level, it could be on a conscious level. But that stigma, that discrimination, that stereotype type that they're facing or maybe the labels and the myths that they're hearing about themselves or the population that struggles with addiction, that might lead them to have a fear of seeking treatment. That might make them use the substance more or whatever their addiction is, they might engage in that behavior more because they say, oh, people think I am this way, so I may as well fill that role. Feelings of isolation, which might lead to heavier substance use, which might lead to overdoses, it ultimately just leads to less and less people struggling with addiction, mental health, or substance use seeking support because of the stigma that we have around these topics. Now, obviously, harm reduction is way more prominent in the substance use areas, and I will touch on those, but I also wanted to just kind of take a step back from what what many people assume is harm reduction only in the sense of substance use and addiction. And I wanna tell you some examples that are in your everyday life. And this is a small list I came up with, but there is thousands. So I challenge you after hearing this list that I've come up with to think of more. And to to just be aware that harm reduction is an everyday approach. It just doesn't necessarily only apply to addiction or mental health or substance use. Okay, so this list, the first harm reduction approach. Remember that essentially harm reduction is reducing the harm in some way, some form, some shape, regardless of what is involved. So one of the examples that I thought of was if you're. Riding your bicycle, one of the best harm reduction ways because there is quite a few accidents that happen on bicycles or motorcycles even, wearing a helmet. A helmet is considered a harm reduction strategy because it reduces the potential harm of, of if or when an accident happens, your harm may be reduced by protecting your head. Another example that's kind of similar is wearing seat belts in your vehicle that seatbelt could be a life-or-death situation for you if you do happen to get into an accident. Another example for vehicles is you continuing to get your quarterly oil changed or your brakes changed or your tires rotated or your tires changed. All of that leads to a safer uh, experience in the vehicle, and that leads to Reducing the harm for both yourself driving, passengers in your vehicle, and others using the roadways. Because you've kept up with all of this maintenance, should you get in an accident, your your brakes will work better. Your vehicle will just function overall better. Now, some that may relate more to everyday life for those that may not drive vehicles is stop signs. Stop signs, traffic lights, all of the traffic signs that are up, they all alert you to what's coming. Example, if there's a train um, crossway happening, there are signs for you to know that, okay, this is coming, I need to stop. There there are signs that say, you know, yield at this area because the other people have the right-of-way. That's a harm reduction rather than people just going straight and other people coming straight and it's just, it's a disaster, right? Some of the other ones that are kind of more focused on alcohol or substance use and substances in general. So at concerts, people often get upset because they serve alcohol or even just pops or waters in plastic cups. They used to serve them in the beer cans or the beer bottles. but Typically, when people are drinking and there's a large crowd like that, it often gets rowdy, and so harm reduction shows that if if somebody is going to get in a fight or somebody is going to drop their alcohol bottle, so say a beer bottle, that potential harm is way more possible than somebody dropping a plastic cup. Now, again, because harm reduction isn't necessarily only going towards abstinence or completely stopping the substance use or behavior. One example could be switching your alcoholic drinks from a very high alcoholic level of content to a lower alcohol content. Other examples could be instead of drinking alcohol today, you're gonna drink water. Um, Harm reduction also for mental health could be, you take your medications every day the harms for that physically and mentally could be substantial. So I could go on and on because, as I said, there's thousands of harm reduction strategies, but I want you to maybe after listening to this kind of take a step back and think of some harm reduction strategies that you use in your life every day or maybe every week or every month that you maybe wouldn't have thought of as being harm reduction strategies unless I said this. So in saying that, because there is harm reduction strategies for everyday life, there is obviously harm reduction strategies for substance use. So I'm going to briefly touch on those because a lot of these are, I'm going to say well known. Uh, I, I think a lot of people know these ones. And I'm hoping that when I explain these, that it's more of an educational piece rather than a why would we do that? We're just normalizing substance use and kind of that whole argument. So common examples of harm reduction in practice for substance use, there is often places called a syringe exchange or needle exchange. Now that is essentially providing not just syringes or needles, um, Essentially, it's providing any type of equipment for anybody that uses substances, whether it's through needle injection, smoking it, snorting it, whatever that looks like, they provide and distribute the equipment needed to make those acts safer. So that could be um, like wound care is included in that. So if something happens when someone's injecting, that would be beneficial. There could be sterile water pouches. There could be alcohol swabs for if somebody's going to inject. Um, clean needles is obviously a big one. Um, for those that smoke um, their substances, there's a special type of tin foil that has less of a chemical. Now I'm not sure what the chemical name is, but there's less of this chemical on the tin foil. so it's safer for the individual to smoke their substances with this tinfoil because they're essentially inhaling and being less open to all of the other chemicals versus traditional tinfoils that we use for our food in the fridge, for example. So there is lots of other kind of aspects to needle exchanges. It's not just needles. There's different tools and equipments that are used for different drugs, different Um, methods of using the substance. And I think it's also important to note, too, for needle exchanges, more often than not, they offer education, they offer testing, whether it's STD testing, whether it's HIV testing. There's so many, so many different areas of expertise that these exchanges have. And sometimes they do referrals to treatment centers, sometimes they do referrals to counseling, sometimes they just do general counseling or kind of coping mechanism type counseling rather than getting into the nitty gritty of what the reason is that they're actually using, but they still offer all of those. Now the next harm reduction approach that we see often in Canada right now and it's free, is naloxone. So I can confidently say that Ontario and Canada is rapidly ramping up and scaling up on the training and distribution of naloxone. Essentially, it's an overdose reversal medication that can be used for anybody that you think might have overdosed or you know has overdosed, and it could be a lifesaver. It's as simple as that. It's not a matter of, well, I'm not going to help you because you've overdosed using the substance. It's going to be, I'm going to help you hopefully recover from this overdose and still be present. I think it's important to note that we can't save anybody that's already passed. Right? If an overdose happens, they have passed. They're deceased. There's nothing that we can do to support. So often with my line of work right now, we carry naloxone kits. I think I have three or four in my car right now. But if I have clients on my caseload that I know does use substance, I provide them naloxone kits, even if they're not using. Their friends might be using. They might be walking down the road, going to the mall, going to a grocery store. The drug crisis right now is so significant here in Ontario, Canada, that I always give out naloxones, whether they're using or not, because if it doesn't save my client's life, it could save their friend's life it could save a complete stranger's life on the road somewhere, right? You just, you just never know who is using, how they're using, when they're using, how often they're using. So it's better to be safe than sorry. And I often think too, I sometimes get a lot of feedback that, you know, why would I, why would I use an Naloxone kit for somebody that I don't know? And to me, it's simple. That is somebody's person. I try to put myself in the the shoes of somebody that is actively supporting somebody in addiction. That's not just a professional role, but more personal. And honestly, to me, it boils down to that's somebody's brother, that's somebody's sister, that's somebody's aunt or uncle or best friend, that's somebody's child, that's somebody's parent, somebody's grandparent. I think once you take a step back from just the act of substance use or the engagement in substance use, They're just a person. They're trying to get through their traumas. They're trying to support themselves the best they can, and this is their coping. But it boils down to they are somebody's person, regardless of what the act is that they do. Now, there's also what's considered to be supervised consumption sites, and this is essentially a clean and safe space for those that are going to be consuming drugs to do so around others. So, essentially, they're using and there is staff around that if something were to go astray or an overdose were to happen there is trained individuals there to support them and again at these consumption sites people get equipment that they need to make it safer use they get referrals they get counseling they can get testing done for any um, diseases they think they might have or just to kind of prepare themselves to know that they you know don't have this or they do have this so If you do have this or you don't have this, act accordingly. And they laid that all out. Now, the other one, which is very controversial for harm reduction, is safe supply. I work with several clients on my caseload right now who do use safe supply. And essentially, it is exactly what it sounds like. It is a pharmaceutical-level drug and there's different versions. There's safe supply for cocaine, there's safe supply for Dilaudas, Um, and there's a bunch of other ones, but essentially safe supply means that you know what is in the drug, you know that it's not laced with something, and you know that it is more responsible to put something that is safer in your body than something that you have no idea what could also be in that. Um, an example of this, I took one of my clients to the Rapid Addiction Medical Clinic in, my area here while I was working, and she was actually looking to get on some addiction treatment supports, and so in order to do that, they had to do blood work, determine what was in her urine, all of that kind of stuff. Now, she told them that she had only used fentanyl. The results came back, and there was benzos in there, there was methamphetamine, and there was fentanyl. So she was under the impression she was only having fentanyl. Her fentanyl was laced with two other things had she not been an active user for so long that could have killed her so safe supply means if you're using fentanyl and you get safe supply fentanyl it is only fentanyl that's in that drug it's not any other laced drug there's nothing else in there so that's a really big one right now that i see a lot at work and honestly it It's saving lives because people aren't overdosing on drugs that they thought they were taking that isn't actually that drug. Now, I also wanted to give this little fun fact. So did you know that needle exchange services, which primarily now are known more for substance use, but did you know that they first appeared in the 1980s working with HIV and hepatitis? And so... The stigma that some people carry for this is around drugs, but they don't even know it started for something totally different. How many people, how many thousands or millions of people died from HIV, AIDS, hepatitis? Now you have needle exchanges that might be saving those lives, right? And again, those are always people that, you know, they're somebody's person. They're somebody's people. So I'm going to throw a couple stats at you. And then I'm hoping you will take some time and just digest everything I've told you. And if you have questions, please reach out. Please research. Please be curious. Seek the answers. Ask the questions. Continue the conversation. So drug overdose death rates right now in the United States of America are three and a half times higher in comparison to the other 17 Western countries. Three and a half times higher. This tells me people are actively dying with drug addictions, and you can't help somebody recover who's dead. So we need to be able to work on the treatments and the supports before it gets that far, before it gets to the end for that person and their family and their loved ones and communities. There is also a study that I found that says that data from around the world and primarily from the U.S., suggests that treating problematic drug use as a health issue, I'm gonna say that again, treating problematic drug use as a health issue instead of a criminal issue is a way more successful model for keeping communities healthy and safe. That means if you're treating it as a health issue, crime is decreased, health risks are decreased, overall lives are improved. I think it's a no-brainer, but a lot of other people question that. Now, another big stat that I found, this is from Drug Policy Canada, so it might be a little different depending where you're listening. But in 2017, so what is that, six years ago, Canada spent $4.8 billion. $4.8 billion on policing costs for illegal drugs and substances. That included all of the policing costs, all of the courts, all of the correctional services. But despite them spending this absurd amount, this $4.8 billion, the overdose crisis continues. It hasn't changed a single thing other than money being wasted in quote-unquote supporting these people with substance concerns to not actually even get support. So, Take that with what you will, but I, I think that's a huge reality that we need to kind of open up to. Now, another stat for you, North America's first sanctioned supervised consumption site saved the taxpayer system almost $6 million by preventing HIV infections and death. So ultimately what that means is that needle site, that safe consumption site saved taxpayers within North America, $6 million because those clean needles that they gave, the clean equipment that they gave, prevented infections and people dying. Another one is, let me see where's the other one here. To make this less about Canada and the States as well, supervised injection sites in Switzerland and Germany have reported reductions in the visibility of public drug use. So not not that you're not seeing substance use, but you're not seeing it maybe publicly on the streets in the parks. It's going more into the injection sites, which is great. In Toronto, Ontario, Canada, in 2017, the same year a supervised injection site began operating in Moss Park, which is in Toronto. The number of criminal offenses dropped they dropped with fewer assaults and fewer robberies there's been so many studies that say drug injection sites safe consumption sites needle exchanges they don't cause an increase in serious crimes they reduce it significantly there is also another study here that this one Says, there was an opening of a supervised injection center in Sydney and it was medically supported. There was no evidence to say that there was increased rates of robbery, theft, drug-related crimes in that neighborhood. So again, it's suggesting and there is studies that prove that it has dropped significantly. In British Columbia, which is in Canada on the West Coast, a substance use study noted that public injection and syringe sharing decreased decreased by 5.5% after overdose prevention sites were opened. I think it's just, it shows a significant amount of benefits to both communities, policymakers, society as a whole, and especially those that are struggling actively with addiction or substance use. Now, in saying all of this I really urge you to take a look at more resources more sites more anything that can kind of give you a better understanding and maybe it is that you research because you don't agree with harm reduction and teach their own I will agree to disagree with you but to each their own I think you in order to have a proper clear opinion I think you need to know kind of the facts and the information behind it instead of just assuming what you think is the case is the case. Because maybe it's not, right? Now, I hope that this was helpful. I hope that this provided some education and some insight into those that maybe struggle or grapple with the idea of harm reduction being a positive approach. I hope this was beneficial for somebody that is listening that may be supporting somebody or their loved ones or their fa- friends or family or coworkers are also struggling with active addiction or substance use. I hope this is helpful. I hope this informed you that harm reduction doesn't just have to be substance use related or addiction related. Again, it's every day of your life and there's so many different areas and ways and places that this shows up. So I urge you to take a couple minutes after listening to this to think of some harm reduction techniques that you use in your life every day or every week or every month and just know that those are reducing the risks for you. Similarly to those that are using substance, the harm harm reduction approaches we're using with those also reduces the risks for them. I, again, hope this was helpful, and welcome back to some solo episodes. Stay tuned for some more, and until next time, I'm sending you lots of love and lots of light.